On June 23, 1984, at around 4 a.m. at a bodega in the Bronx, a male customer bought beer and a 25-year-old woman bought cigarettes. It's unclear whether they knew one another. The store clerk said that the woman willingly got into the male customer's blue and white sedan. However, according to the woman, she was abducted upon leaving the store. Then, she was dragged into a park, raped, sodomized, and robbed before chasing the man down and getting her money back. Then, while waiting for a cab, the same man dragged her into an abandoned building where he again assaulted her, but this time, he cut her face with a razor blade, blinding her in her left eye and threatening to kill her if she went to the police. When she awoke, she called first responders and went to the hospital where she underwent surgery and a rape kit. Police showed her a mugshot book and she chose the picture of a man named Alan Newton. The store clerk identified Alan as well from a photo array. But on the night of the crime, Alan had stayed with his fiancé's family in Queens, all of whom had said that no one had left in the middle of the night. Curiously, no serology was presented at trial, only two very shaky IDs from the witness and the victim who could not agree on whether the victim knew her assailant or not. Advances in DNA testing would be all that Allen needed to eventually disprove his accusers, but only if the police could be bothered to locate the rape kit right where it had always been for 22 long years. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, 
Well, this is long overdue because ever since I started doing this podcast back in 2016, I've I've thought a lot about this case of the man you're about to hear from in person, Alan Newton. And I don't know why we haven't gotten around to it till now, but I'm so glad we're going to do it today because this is a story that needs to be heard. And it's a hard one to hear, by the way. And I'm very, very excited and honored to have you here today. Alan Newton, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, Jason. I definitely appreciate what y'all guys doing as far as getting our story out there. So let's go back to before this happened and before you were exposed to the worst that our criminal legal system has to offer. Your life was was pretty good, right? Mm, fairly decent. I was working, had graduated high school, and in my mind, you know, back in 1984, living my best life and preparing to go to college in a couple of years, and just an ordinary young guy, just living my life. I mean, you're working for the New York Telephone Company, obviously a name that doesn't exist anymore, but New York Telephone Company, for people who remember that far back, was a big company in New York, obviously, and you were going to hip-hop dance parties in the Bronx, which was, again, like that was the popular thing to do back then. And if I understand correctly, you were also engaged at the time, right? Yes. I had. Um, I was living in the Bronx. My fiance was living in Queens. So I was working in Manhattan. So I was basically traveling around New York City through the boroughs and parties. Just making your way, right? Like any other 23-year-old guy would be doing at the time. And so you had one previous incident that I guess put you on the radar of the authorities, right? Can you tell us about that? Um, It was the year 1979, about two, three months before I graduated high school. And I was at a party and got in a fight with another young teenager my age and got a battery charge. And unfortunately, it was the photographs in the police mugshot books that the victim supposedly picked out to connect me to this wrongful conviction arrest. Yeah, I mean, we've heard that story before, whether it's with the John Adrian Velasquez case or so many other cases where some minor infraction for which somebody in a different zip code probably wouldn't have been arrested or charged. But, you know, a little high school incident, a fight, I'm not saying a fight isn't a serious thing, but it was a fight among two teenage boys, which happens every day in different cities all over the country. And 99% of the time, no charges are filed. But, you know, in the poorer communities, people of color, you can end up with a record that could end up with a mugshot in a book that can end up in a wrongful conviction. And it happens time and again. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And and you're absolutely right, because, you know, later on, learning about the case and all that, the other guy that I had to fight with wasn't coming to court, so it really wasn't anybody, fought, you know, pushing the case along through the, the justice system. But in my ignorance, not knowing better and just wanting to move on because I was working and losing days at work, you know, coming back and forth to court, I decided just to take a plea. And and like you said, under different circumstances and another zip code, the case would have just because, like you said, it's just a fight between teenagers at a party, and but that's not the way the justice system like the dole out punishment when it comes to certain communities is is more so about putting people through the criminal justice system and making sure that they have a record for the rest of their lives. So that brings us right up to the time of the crime. 
Now, at 4 a.m. on June 23, 1984, a 25-year-old woman stopped at a convenience store in the Bronx to buy cigarettes. And there are some conflicts in the narrative between the victim and the store clerk that had an impact later in the compromised way in which the jury decided the case. So back to the night of the crime. The store clerk said that the assailant also came into the store at that time and bought a beer before returning to his car, a blue and white sedan where he was honking his horn for the victim in this case. The store clerk said that the victim went to the car voluntarily. The victim, meanwhile, maintained when she exited the store that this other customer, the assailant, grabbed her from behind, put a box cutter to her throat, and threw her into the blue and white sedan and it drove off. Now, after a few minutes, the car stalled. And when the assailant got out to check the engine, allegedly the passenger side door handle was broken off so the victim couldn't get out of the car. The assailant then dragged her to a nearby park where he orally sodomized and raped her and attempted to take her money and cigarettes. Yes, she said the guy took her money. She said she ran after the guy and the guy gave her her money back when she claimed that she had some kids to feed. She she didn't say she was going to call the cops at this time or anything. She said she was waiting for a cab. She said the guy came and abducted her again. This time he took her in an abandoned building, raped her again, robbed her again, and this time he cut her. In case it wasn't horrible enough, he cut her face with a razor to prevent her from identifying him. He actually blinded her in one eye. And he told her that if she called the police, he would come back and kill her. She saw his back as he ran away, and then she passed out. But when she came to and regained consciousness, she went to a call box. They used to have these police call boxes around the city, and she called the police. Let me ask you, she described the victim as 5'7 or 5'8, 160 pounds, with a short afro and a mustache. But she said she couldn't tell if he was dark or light-skinned because it was middle of the night. Obviously, it was very dark out. And she told the detective at the hospital that he was physically large and that his name was Willie. Did any of this stuff match up with you? It didn't match up with me. It wasn't anything that connected me to the crime. I was in Queens that weekend with my fiance, had the ticket stubs from going to see Ghostbusters that Saturday. And Yeah, wow, Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking about that movie was like such a huge thing. It, can't, it was like the only thing people were talking about. That summer of 84, which has other implications, specifically that there was no DNA testing back in 1984. At the hospital, they did do a rape kit and sperm was gathered. But without the DNA testing that eventually would exonerate you, Alan, all they had was serology. So to the best of your knowledge, did they do any testing about blood types at all of this evidence that they had collected? Not to my knowledge. I didn't find any paperwork, but um, I have to believe they had an idea because when I got arrested, I went through Rikers Allen, and back then they was taking blood from you. But as far as I know, they never did any serology testing, even though they had my blood type and they had that serology evidence that was in the rape kit. So serology testing was... Standard protocol back then in a case like this. If they had something to use against you, I'm sure you know that they would have. But the only evidence from the rape kit that the DA used was that spermatozoa were present, proving that a sexual interaction had occurred, but nothing about blood types, which is very suspicious. And meanwhile, the detectives brought their mug book down to the hospital, and the victim, who had, remember, just gotten out of eye surgery, was shown a dizzying amount of pictures. Who knows what was going on during this process as far as the suggestive nature of it or the pressure they put on her when she was in an extremely fragile state. But then eventually she picked out your picture from that arrest back in high school. 
Then they brought a photo lineup to the store clerk who also picked you out. And even with the, um, the store clerk, the store clerk said the reason why she recognized me, this is what she claimed on the stand. I was the only guy that came into that establishment in the last 12 hours that she didn't know. And again, we don't know how suggestive they were being with either of these identifications. And then both of them, having already seen your picture, it's not surprising at all that both women picked you out of a live lineup. So you were arrested. But something about this idea and the whole situation should have stuck out to everyone involved. The clerk maintained that the victim knew the assailant. But the victim didn't know you at all, right? I mean, Correct. did you know the victim? Not at all. Never seen her, never met her, never knew her. Right. Plus, you had a solid alibi. Your fiance and her daughter vouched for you. You've got the movie ticket stubs. You had stayed up late watching TV with her family in Queens before spending the night there. I mean, you were in an entirely different borough. I wasn't in the Bronx that weekend. I was in Queens in Brooklyn. And it gets even better now. When I first got arrested, my fiance, you know, my intended father-in-law, he was a retired correction officer. Hmm. He went to the Bronx District Attorney's Office and said, listen, I don't know what this case is about, but I know this man was at my house in Queens. And they try to ask, well, do we have a key? Do he be coming in three, four in the morning? They was like, listen, he, he don't move like that. It wasn't no urgency to try to get to the truth to find out what really happened. And like I said, the victim also told the cops this guy named was some guy named Willie. Later on, I found out that the cops was investigating some guy named Willie and paperwork that I was able to get years later showed that they was doing an investigation into somebody. Matter of fact, it was a series of rapes going on in the community. And it was fitting a similar description, a similar MO, and that just stopped. I mean, it sounds like maybe this guy could have been an informant or they were protecting him in some way. I don't know, because otherwise, why would anybody want to let a serial rapist remain free? It's insane. But that's what happened. And I can only speculate because I have no idea what was going on behind the scenes. And it's crazy when you talk about your father-in-law to be, you know, I mean, this is a guy you would think would have some credibility, you know, in that system, especially. And they didn't care what he had to say. They didn't care what you had to say. They didn't care about your fiance. Say, in fact, they were aggressively disinterested. No question. They were fighting against the truth and they won. They said when they came to stand, well, once we focus on Mr. Newton, everything else ceased in regards to another suspect. And a lot of these cases, the person that committed these crimes go on to commit multiple crimes. Okay, I'm not caught. They don't stop and like check themselves. Right. And this is a guy who was so depraved that he also took a, a box cutter to her face. I mean, like this is like this is a person that we should all want off the streets. You Correct. know, I mean, Jesus Christ. This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,400 lawyers across 42 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for death penalty representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be. 
because a more just world only happens by design. They offered me three years, Jason. They offered me three to 10 years in a plea deal. And I, I couldn't take that. So I made a conscious decision to go to trial and fight this all the way through. How long did the trial take? Five to six days altogether. So at trial, they only used the rape kit and other biological evidence to determine that a sexual act had occurred. But no serological evidence was presented, so we don't know what they found out, if anything at all. And I'd only be speculating to say that since they had identifications from the victim and the witness, they may have ignored or hidden inconvenient exculpatory evidence, like if the blood type didn't match Alan. And of course, many years later, DNA testing absolutely excluded Alan and proved that these two misidentifications were just that, totally unreliable, and that's really all this trial came down to, the two misidentifications. They had the lineup. They had the lineup where I was picked out by the victim and this witness. But when they both came to court a year later and saw me again, neither one of them initially picked me out in court. Neither one of them. And then the district attorney that was on the case at the time, the ADA, had a discussion with the victim and the store clerk, and they both came up with an excuse of why I'm now the guy. So the only evidence they had was shaky, but somehow that was still enough to overcome your defense. What, if anything, was presented in your favor? I mean, not only did my fiance testify, her daughter testified. My fiance also took a lie detector test. She passed it. You know, the court was informed. The district attorney was informed about this. And unlike you see on CSI or one of these other law and order shows where, okay, somebody passed a lie detector test. Let's try to do a little more research. The only thing the judge did, he turned to my fiance while she was on the stand and said, listen, if you say anything about that lie detector test, I'm going to hold you in contempt. Right. And obviously, lie detector test results are inadmissible because the testing is super subjective. But back in 1984, polygraph results were still admissible in court. So it's interesting and confusing that this judge seemed keen on keeping that information from the jury. Which brings us to this very odd verdict. You were acquitted of all the charges stemming from the incident at the park but convicted of the charges related to the victim's attack in the abandoned building, which I had to read that like three times because I was like, but wait a minute. It was known at the time directly from the victim that it was the same person. Correct. So can you, I mean. That's a great question. I just, help me out here because I don't understand. I got an answer for that. Remember now, the victim and the clerk had different testimony in regards to how the victim got into the car. The victim says she was abducted. The clerk says she willingly walked into the car. So the jury surmised that these two people knew each other. And then to hear what the jury told my lawyer about why they made that decision, it was like, whoa. What did they say? Well, they called the girl a liar about being abducted coming out the store. They went with the store clerk's testimony that she walked into the car on her own, which means they were saying the girl and the guy was together, but we believe something went wrong after the park. So they believed the victim when she said she got assaulted in the building, but they thought she was lying about the park. And that came out because she got cut. If this woman did not get cut, 
I truly believed I wouldn't have got convicted because their attitude was, well, this was a consensual relationship, even though that wasn't the testimony outside of what the clerk said about the guy beeping the horn and the victim walking into the car. So that's called a repugnant verdict because it's the same victim, it's the same evidence, and a judge legally don't supposed to allow because it's inconsistent. I mean, the jury was presented with this conflicting evidence, and maybe in the interest of public safety, or so they thought, they were very willing to come up with their own narrative of the events to come to this verdict, which, of course, isn't what they're supposed to do. They accepted the store clerk's testimony, in effect, calling the victim's testimony about not knowing her attacker. They called that a lie. Meanwhile, it was undisputed that she didn't know you at all, yet she identified you anyway. That means if the store clerk was right, the victim must have been protecting her actual attacker when talking to the police and fingered you in his place. On the other hand, if the store clerk was wrong, maybe she was abducted by a stranger, but then the jury should have believed her about both assaults. They just chose to believe half of the victim's story about the building, and we don't believe what happened in the park. And they said, well, we're going to go with the store clerk because supposedly she's an independent witness. But it was also testimony from the victim herself now that she had got assaulted about less than a month before by an ex-boyfriend. So it was a lot of things that came out, but I also believe the judge played a big part in, in my trial because the ADA in my case was kind of new. Fresh out of law school, you know, she wasn't up to par when it came to trying to question witnesses. The judge was taking over cross-examination and direct examination. It was like, you're supposed to be, you know, the arbitrator, not make the case for the ADA. Unfortunately, he passed away before my case got overturned because I would have really liked to show him that I was really innocent. I'm sure that would have been satisfying considering what you're telling us now and also what we know this judge had already said to your fiance about being held in contempt. It sounds like he was really, for all intents and purposes, just another prosecutor, like an adjunct prosecutor, which obviously totally tilts the scale and not in your favor at all. So at this point, did you expect the jury would see past the nonsense? I mean, when you're telling the truth, you believe in your heart it's going to stand up. You, you believe it's enough. It came as a real shock. I wanted to prove my innocence and say, hey, I got the wrong guy here. You know, this this can't go on. And I didn't think it was going to last 22 years. And I mean, I didn't think I was going to get convicted either. So Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The first thing I did once I got upstate, the first motion I put in, the pro se motion, was trying to get serology testing. That's the first motion I put in. I want to try to get that rape kit and try to test it. You know, and this was pre-DNA. I just want to test it for blood typing. Judge Weinstein, all through the years when I was filing motions on my behalf, he just, he would shoot me down. He just disregarded all my motions. Even I was trying to find the rape kit and presenting, you know, the, the Republican verdict. Everything got dismissed and it was hard, man. It, you know, it was rough. I lost both my parents in there and, woo, 
things that, you know, that I lost, I could never get back. But I had my family and they was, you know, always there for me. And so having that support and had to keep fighting, though, until I got it right, though, until they realized they made a mistake. And that took, unfortunately, way too long, as it usually does in these cases. Ten years after I got convicted, New York State passed the DNA law. I was one of the first people to put in a motion as far as trying to get testing. On August 16th, 1994, that was the first time that you requested the post-conviction DNA testing. But the court denied your request because they said the kit could not be located. Because I was going pro se... The courts allowed the DA's office to indicate, well, we can't find it. We did a search. We can't find it. And so my one true hope of proving my innocence in my mind didn't exist anymore. You know, it was gone. Finito. And that had to be a terrible blow, right? You know, I was almost broken, though. And, you know, no chance of getting out. I got to do all this time unless I go say I did something I didn't do to try to make parole. And I had spoke with, uh, you know, my brother about it, my family and... I was like, hey, I may have to go take a program here and say I did this crime just to have consideration, not for release, consideration. And my family was like, nah, you're not doing that. I was like, I'm doing this time. They was like, no, we all doing this time with you. That sounds like a pretty dark time. But fortunately, this whole situation turned around and this is the good stuff. So- what happened next? So now, 10 years after that, when the Innocence Project come on the case, Vanessa Popkin reached out to the Bruns County District Attorney's Office, and the ADA decided, okay, you know, we're going to look for it now because we have an attorney asking us. The relationships the Innocence Project had with the District Attorney offices made it possible. I mean, the courts couldn't make the DA's office look for it. In November 2005, the kit was found after a physical search of the evidence barrels at the Pearson Place Queens warehouse, which means the rape kit was found in the same barrel that was indicated on the evidence voucher, which is to say it was where it was supposed to be and where it had almost certainly been all those years that they had been saying they couldn't find it, it was right there. Now, it was supposed to go back to the Bronx. It never went back to the Bronx. They didn't come to pick it up after the trial. And what happened, you know, evidence that's not reclaimed is sent to Pearson Place in Queens. And like you said, it was indicated on the voucher that it was sent somewhere else. Now, this is the, this is the tricky part. If it had got sent back to the Bronx, there's a possibility I wouldn't have been here because the Bronx was losing and destroying stuff. Queens warehouse was bigger, so they was able to maintain property, even though they got property in there for 50 years. They was able to maintain it. So technically, it wasn't where it was supposed to be, but it was where it was indicated to be. So in April 2006... FSA, Forensic Science Associates, obtained a full DNA profile from the vaginal and cervical swabs. The reference samples were collected from you, Allen, and FSA and the Bronx DA's office confirmed the DNA 
drum roll, please. Here we go. The DNA conclusively excluded you as the source of the sperm recovered from the victim immediately after the rape. Justice finally prevailed. It was delayed, but not denied. It was delayed for 22 years. And on July 6th of 2006, you walked out of a Bronx courthouse after the Innocence Project and the Bronx County DA's office filed a joint motion to vacate your conviction. I remember this because we were all celebrating. What was that moment like for you? I was heaven. I was, I was being, I was like being born again. I didn't see it coming. I was almost prepared to just do the whole 40. Uh, that was the attitude I had because the pre-parole board told me I have no chance unless I take responsibility. And so I, I, I couldn't see it. And I mean, I was walking around like a zombie. I was just, you know, being led by my family and, you know, I mean, the lights and it it was the best moment in my life. You know, like getting convicted, you know, 22 years prior to that, I didn't see that curveball coming. I didn't really see this curveball coming too because they told me the evidence was gone. So when they found it, you know, it was like, if it's not tampered with, I know I'm okay. Let me interject one thing real quick. If it was up to the city, I would have never got exonerated. We found out during a civil trial, the OCME's office, when they was doing the testing, they was contaminating their own samples. They was not able to come up with a result whether that was my DNA or not because the sample that they had, they was contaminating it. So whether it's being done deliberately or, you know, just incompetence, it's still being done. And if you can't get access to independent testing, which is what the Innocence Project was able to do, instead of relying on just the OCME's office, it's, you're in a catch-22 situation. Because you can only believe the sworn documents that they submit to the court. It's the same way when I was filing my motions pro se all those years, they were swearing to the court that they did a search and can't find the evidence. It's terrifying. I mean, it's scary enough to think it could get lost. Like, even when your evidence was sitting in that warehouse, there could have been a flood, right? There could have been anything, and you would be doomed. But it wasn't. So when July 6th came and they cut a brother loose, like I said, it was like my born day. That's like my second birthday now, and I look forward to that day, and I cherish it. I appreciate life so much more now because... I realized how quick we can have it snatched away from us. Just, you know, on somebody's accusation, somebody's claim, and, you know, how we really don't have any rights because that's what it came down to. You know, you're guilty until you prove your innocence. That's the way the, the system is now. So it was, you know, bittersweet, too, at the end of the day because I had lost so much. Like I said, both my parents, so it was bittersweet. 45 years old, you're released out into the world, no job. Your fiance had moved on. I mean, can't blame her after 22 years. But, you know, you hit the ground running anyway. Scholarship from the Thurgood Marshall Fund enabled you to enroll and get a BS in business administration, right? I remember meeting you back around that time and we started working as a youth mentor, started dating, even water skiing in the Caribbean eventually, right? And graduating in 2008. And of course, you filed civil rights lawsuit and were awarded 
a lot of money. I don't think there's any amount of money that would be enough to justify the suffering that you went through and your family went through. But the fact is, it's nice to see. I mean, unfortunately, most exonerees never get any compensation. It makes me happy to see when somebody like you does at least get that monetary reward so you can, you know, do the things that you want to do. And I give back, though, and I try to help the exonerees, try to go out there and talk about this issue because I can stay in my, you know, man cave and, you know, stay depressed and stay focused on the last 40 years of my life. But it's more about, you know, letting people know there's something better out there and, and we can make things better, but we all have to, you know, stay, you know, vigilant in, in trying to make this possible. And I'm glad you're out there doing it, everything you're doing. It's so important. If people need to hear from you, you're including right here, right now on this podcast. So now getting towards the closing of the show, it's called Closing Arguments, and it works like this. I'm going to, first of all, thank you again for being here and for being such a beacon of, of hope and for sharing your story. And then I'm going to kick back in my chair, turn off my microphone, leave my headphones on, and just listen anything else you want to share with me and our audience. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you guys and being able to tell this story. It's a blessing because I think um, this is, you know, one subject that all sane minds think alike. We should not have innocent people being wrongfully convicted and locked up for anything. And if there's any chance in any shred of evidence that proved this, I think, you know, we should move mountains to, to exonerate, you know, men and women because you have a lot more women now that's being wrongfully convicted also. And and like I said, I think this is one thing that, you know, we all agree about, but we just have to be diligent and always reminding, you know, public officials that this is a subject that affects each and every one of us and each time the opportunity arises, we must help people in these situations, you know, while they're in prison trying to prove their innocence and definitely when we come home. Because like you said, I, I had to hit the ground running because it wasn't nothing there for me. I had a lot of help, fortunately, and unfortunately, a lot of my you know, fellow exonerees don't have that type of help, you know, whether it's, you know, where they got exonerated or you know, the family or friends situation is so important that, you know, we all as a society try to not only prevent this from happening in the future, but when it does, make every opportunity to make these people hold again. You know, make it right. They can't go back and obtain what they lost, but moving forward, we can all make life better for us. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.